But we have to ask some questions this morning. And the first question we have to ask is, what is revival? What is revival? What is it? Well, let me start by saying what it is not. Let me say what revival is not. First of all, revival is not a series of scheduled meetings in a tent somewhere. Okay, It's not something you can plan. You can't put it on your church calendar and say, next week we're going to have revival, so bring your friends to the revival. It's not something that can be planned. It's not something that can be scheduled. It's not something that you can just program and calculate. It doesn't happen every spring. When I was growing up, we had spring revivals every year. It's, it's not a spring revival. It's not something where people get involved in emotional frenzies and do weird stuff. It's not some guy with slick back hair and a white jacket spitting at you and yelling at the top of his lungs. Breathing hellfire. That's not a, that's not a revival. What is revival? We're going to look this morning and find out what revival is. Because I would say this. Most of us in this room have never experienced a biblical revival of lasting proportions. So, here's the question. If it can't be planned, can't be programmed, can't be scheduled, can't be calculated, then how do we know we're experiencing it? How do we know that we're in the midst of revival? How do we know that God has poured out His Spirit? What are the evidences of revival? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Biblical marks of revival. And we're going to look in the Old Testament at the story of King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. So turn there briefly with me to 2 Chronicles. It's in the Old Testament. And I've been doing a lot of study over the summer about revival. I've been reading on revivals. I've been studying biblical revivals. I've been looking at the Old Testament, at all the different revivals in the Old Testament. And you see patterns. There's a lot of patterns that emerge of things that are present in biblical revivals. And this one we're going to look at at Josiah was the last revival before the children of Israel went into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They came back and the wall was rebuilt and there was another revival. But I'm going to give to give you some brief historical background, okay? Anytime you jump into the Old Testament, let's be honest, we don't spend enough time in the Old Testament. Would you agree? The Old Testament's foreign territory for a lot of us. So let me give you some context, some historical background. All of you guys know who King David is. King David was the premier king of Israel. And the nation was bounded together under King David to be a single monarchy. And David was the prototype king. And he had a son named Solomon. And under Solomon's rule, the temple was built. But Solomon became disobedient. And as a matter of fact, what happened was Israel eventually split into two kingdoms. They had civil war, a northern and a southern kingdom. They split into civil war. Kings from both the northern country and the southern country for the most part, were evil kings that did evil in the sight of the Lord. There were a few good kings, but for the most part, the kings were evil. And they went down this trajectory, down this path of disobeying the Lord and not following in the footsteps of David. And there's this passage of Scripture in Second Chronicles 7.14. I'm sure you've all heard that passage of Scripture before. It's prayed a lot at... When we pray for revival, when you pray at National Days of Prayer, let me read that to you, and let me give you the context. This is actually Solomon's prayer when he's dedicating the temple of the Lord. And this is what he says in Second Chronicles seven fourteen. And you've heard this before. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. That was God's standard. For the nation of Israel to be obedient, humble, pliable servants of God. But what happened was, history proves it out, they did not go that path. They went down a path of disobedience. 
They went down a path of rebellion, a path of treachery, really. And there's this king, Manasseh. I don't know if you've heard of Manasseh. In 2 Chronicles 33, we find the story of Manasseh. Manasseh was a wicked king. Let me tell you some of the wicked things that Manasseh did. Manasseh built altars to a false god. But this is even more wicked than what Manasseh did. Manasseh sacrificed his own children in the fire. In the fires of the valley of Hinnon to the god Molech. Sacrificed his own children in the fire. He consorted with spiritists and mediums and New Age philosophers and tried to get his opinions from the world around him. And he engaged in all this type of wizardry. And eventually he died. Had a son, Amon. Amon was just as wicked as his father. Amon was eventually assassinated by some of his cabinet. So you have Manasseh, wicked king. And this is what was said in 2 Chronicles 33.9. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Can you believe that? A king of Israel led his nation to do more evil than the surrounding pagan nations around him. And then Josiah comes on the scene. Josiah was the son of Ammon. He became king at the age of eight years old, and he reigned for 31 years. And God did a work in the life of Josiah and in the life of the nation of Israel that was a revival. And so this morning, we're going to see what God did through Josiah, and we're going to see marks of biblical revival. So turn with me to 2 Chronicles 34. We're going to read the first four verses as we see bits and pieces here of what God can do through a people on fire for him in revival. 2 Chronicles 34.1 Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above him. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. We're going to look at some marks of biblical revival. The first thing we see here, you know revival is on the rise. You know God is up to something in the fires of revival when you see a renewed intensity in prayer. A renewed intensity in prayer. Josiah was 16 years old. And it said here he began to seek the God of David, his father, in verse 3. He began to pray. As a 16-year-old teenager... Josiah said, I'm not going to look at the nations around me. I'm not going to look and see what other people are doing. I'm going to see what God is up to, and I'm going to pray to God, and I'm going to go in a step in a footsteps different than my dad and my grandfather. I don't care about what the world says. I care about what God says. And so I'm going to seek the face of my God, the God of David, the God who's been faithful, and I'm going to look at him. And we're going to look at this next week about how prayer is a catalyst for revival. But needless to say, any prayer movement, any revival, any outbreak of God is going to be preceded by an intensity in prayer. Jonathan Edwards, you know who he is. He was the great pastor of our country 
And in the early days of our country, the Lord ignited the fires of revival under the first great awakening. And Jonathan Edwards says this, quote, When God has something very great for his church, it is his will that there should proceed at the extraordinary prayers of his people. And let me just say this, every great revival movement in the history of the world has been preceded by prayer. And let me make it more specific. It's always been preceded by great movements of prayer among teenagers and college students. Let me address our youth this morning and our college students. And you've got to hear my heart here because I was a youth pastor for almost 10 years. So I love teenagers. Do you as students, 16, 17, 13, 18, 19, 20-year-old students, do you see yourself as valuable to the kingdom of God here in Emmanuel Baptist Church? Or do you say, well, we're just relegated to the loft. That's where we hang out. We're really not that important. You guys are important. And I want to say this to teenagers. If you guys really get serious about following Jesus, if you get really serious like Josiah said, I'm not going to look at the world around me. I'm going to look at what God has to say about it. I don't care what the world has to say about it. My focus is on God. You're going to turn this world upside down. And I would not be surprised If the greater works that we talked about last week of the fires of revival, you guys as teenagers blow us away as adults in doing the greater works. I believe that with my heart. That God is going to raise up a new generation of teenagers that love Jesus. Part of us feels like we failed as a generation in seeing what God can do. As a matter of fact, I read a story. I came across a story a couple weeks ago. I was watching religious TV. I don't recommend that, but I was doing that. And um, I came across a good program. (laughs) These teenagers, two plain Jane teenagers in California, were burdened about their school. Their school had a lot of fights. There was a lot of bullying. There was a lot of friction in the school. There was friction between students and teachers. There was a lot of problems in the school. And these two plain Jane teenagers said, we're going to do something. We're going to make a stand. We're actually going to kneel at our lockers and pray for our school. Bold move. They went and they knelt at their lockers and began to pray. People would walk by and, and castigate them and throw paper at them and, and yell at them and, and basically humiliate them. But that did not stop them. And they began to pray. And after a month's time, 30 teenagers were gathered in the hallways of the school praying for their school. And the administration, we don't know what happened. It's just something weird happened. No more fights. No more bullying. Good relationships between students and teachers. Their school was transformed. And youth groups in that area grew. And kids were coming to know Christ. Because two plain Jane teenagers said, I don't care what the world says. I'm going to pray for my school. And God did a work. Do you believe, teenagers, that God can do a work in you to change this world? I hope you do. I hope you believe that with your whole heart. Because God raised up Josiah as a 16-year-old man to say, I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek the face of the Lord. Second thing he did was he purged the land of idols. Purging our land of idols. He waited four years to do that. He, was, he waited till he was 20, and it could have been because he was afraid. Uh, his dad w- was assassinated. Maybe he was afraid that until I'm 20, until I'm really a man, I can't really make the big decisions. But he waits four years, he prays and says, let's purge the land of idols. And not only does he purge the land of idols, he obliterates them, he pulverizes them. He he breaks them down to the dust and says, let's get rid of the idols in the land. Let's get rid of our idols. The Thessalonian church in the New Testament was a model church. As a matter of fact, Paul says, you're a model. Your, Your testimony has rung out across the whole world. 
And he says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, most of us here are not going to have a little Buddha statue in our house, and we're going to go light candles and worship Buddha. Most of us don't have idols constructed in our homes. But let me say something about idolatry. Anything in your life that is elevated above Jesus Christ is a cheap substitute and is an idol. And we cling on to idols so tightly. Whether it's wealth, whether it's money, whether it's popularity, whether it's relationship, whether it's toys, kids, or adults. Adults, we have toys too. Anything that we hold tightly on that takes the place of God is an idol. And Josiah said, I'm going to purge the land of idols. I'm going to get rid of the idols. Not just put them in a back corner somewhere. He blew blew them to smithereens, basically. If you go on and read the rest of the story, he got rid of the idols. But then there was a wonderful interlude in the story. There's a house cleaning project. Josiah looks around the land. He starts praying. He starts removing the idols. He says, you know what? God's house is in shambles. My grandfather and my dad left God's very house in shambles. The temple's in shambles. Let's repair the temple. And so he calls everybody together. He calls the stonemasons and he calls the, uh, the um, architects, not architects, who do he call? The stonemasons and, and carpenters and all these people together to rebuild and repair the temple. And something very interesting happens when they're doing this. The high priest Hilkiah goes down in the basement. You can probably pick it out. He goes down the basement. He starts rummaging through stuff. And on some dull, dusty shelf back in the bottom of the basement, hidden for generations, what does he find? Does anybody know? He finds the book of the law. He finds Deuteronomy. He finds God's word. God's word had been hidden away in a tiny basement, dust-covered for generations. What an amazing thing to think that God's word was hidden away in a nation. How is God's word viewed in your family? Is it on some back shelf gathering dust? The only time you open it is on Sunday mornings when Sean preaches. How do you value God's word? And something amazing happened when Josiah found this book. They brought it to King Josiah. They read it to him. And notice what happens in verse 19. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Tearing your clothes in that ancient custom was a way of expressing extreme grief and mourning over sin. He was upset. Not only had the Bible been castigated to this lower place back in some shelf in a basement somewhere, but he was confronted with God's standard and it broke his heart and he was wounded. He was cut to the core in deep anguish. And so the third thing we see in revival is a personal brokenness over sin, a brokenness. Brokenness. Are you broken over your personal sin? Does your sin bother you that it bothers God? J.I. Packer, the greatest living theologian of our day, says this, and I'm going to read it slow because he's British and sometimes there's a lot of words. So here we go. The perverseness... Ugliness, uncleanness, and guilt of sin are seen and felt with new vividness. Under revival conditions, consciences are so quickened that conviction of each person's own sinfulness becomes strong and terrible, including agonies of mind that are beyond imagination until they happen. And the gospel of forgiveness through Christ's cross comes to be loved as never before, as people see their need of it so much more clearly. How does Josiah respond 
to God's word. There's three ways he responds, and we see these in verses 26 and 27. Read along with me. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words you've heard. Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you've humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. One response we see from Josiah was he had a tender and responsive heart. He had a tender heart. God's word had confronted him right between the eyes, and he didn't negotiate with God. He didn't try to cover up his sin. He didn't try to to bring pride into his life. He was broken, and he had a tender and responsive heart and said, I have sinned against God. Do you have a tender heart this morning for the things of God? Do you have a pliable heart, a responsive heart to what God is telling you to do? And notice also he humbled himself under God's word. Twice it says he humbled himself. He humbled himself under this authority. Now let me say something that's not very popular, but I'm going to say it anyway. And this is about Christians. I'm not saying this about non-Christians. I'm saying this about Christians. And hear me clearly. I'm afraid there are so many Christians living in our world, in our church, that say, I dictate what is right and wrong, what is true and false by how I feel and what makes me happy as opposed to this infallible Word of God. That's a dangerous place to be. God's Word is the standard infallibly. It defines what we believe. It defines what is right and wrong. And I'm afraid too many of us are thinking, I'm just going to define what's right or wrong because it makes me feel good to engage in sin. God is not concerned about your happiness, I'm sorry to tell you. He's concerned about your holiness. And when you're holy, then you're in God's will, and then you're happy. But God's not primarily concerned about you and your felt desires. This is the standard. And also, he wept in brokenness over the sins of his people. His own sins and the sins of his people. He wept. He looked around and it bothered him that I am a king of a nation that has put God's word on the back shelf. We've denied God's word. I'm living among people that are pagan. And it bothered him to the core. Does it bother you about your own sin? Does it bother you when you see your friends and your family members and people that you're close to living a life of rebellion? Do you weep and are broken over the sins of the people around you? That was how Josiah responded. Let me read to you a quote by Richard Owen Roberts. In our prayer meetings. This has become a, a quote that we've read a lot over the past couple of weeks. And it's long, but listen to this. When revival comes, an intense spirit of conviction will be felt immediately. Conduct that has always seemed acceptable will appear unbelievably wicked. Prejudices that have characterized professing Christians for decades will be revealed for the grievous sins they really are. Private indulgences upon which a person has looked with favor for years will suddenly seem to merit all the wrath of God poured out forever. Prayerlessness, ignorance of Scripture, sins of omission and failure and good works will no longer be defended by a myriad of excuses, but will be laid open before the God with whom we have to do. Do you understand what he's saying? When true revival comes, you're bothered by things in your life that are displeasing to God. And it's not business as usual. One of my values as pastor is to, is to let you give testimony about how the Lord has done a work in your life. 
And this morning, I've asked Rick Ramos to come and share how God has done a renewing work in his life. Rick was saved when he was in middle school, but went down a path of disobedience and rebellion, and God did a work in his life. And I want you to hear his story this morning. So, Rick, would you come and share with us what God has done in your life through the renewing and reviving power of God? Tell us a little bit about what your life was like going down this path. Well, I'd like to say that... uh... I'd like to stand up here and tell you I didn't have an alcohol problem or a drug problem. I'd like to tell you that uh, I wasn't divorced or I didn't lose my children or my job, but uh, but I did. And the consequences of that was the loss of everything, everything that I knew, stripped of my pride. It's just, for me, God was patient. And he spent time working with me and having to reteach me everything that I thought as a child was okay to do. And and to just reprogram me. Um, Now, I'm married back to my wife. I have my children back, have a wonderful home, and that's all we do is serve God. And it's, it's just such a blessing and an encouragement to see each one of you out there who've participated in my life and given my family, and I hope, to continue to do God's will. And so I, I, I'd like to thank you guys that. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. It's a beautiful thing to see Rick's family always sitting there in the first service and, um, and sharing with Rick almost on a weekly basis. We, we tend to meet together. Um, God has done a work in his life, and there is hope for those of you that have issues in your life that God can redeem, can restore, and renew you to wholeness. And Rick is a living testimony of that, and I appreciate him being able to stand before you and share those things. What happens next in the story is a covenant renewal ceremony. Covenant renewal ceremony. We see something happen in verses 30 through 33. Josiah is broken by the sin in his life. And he doesn't keep it to himself. He says, as king, we've got to do something about this. I'm going to call the whole nation together for a covenant renewal ceremony. Notice what happens in verses 30 through the rest of the chapter. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, that is the temple, with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in his book. Then he made all those who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers." Another thing that we see here is that everyone was affected. In revival, everyone is affected. It's not just a small little thing over here where a few people are getting on fire for Jesus. It permeates the entire nation. Or it permeates the entire congregation. 
It says everyone, both great and small, assembled together, young and old. And that includes children who are young enough to understand what's going on. And let me digress here and talk about children in worship. Many of you wonder why we don't have a children's church. And I'm not necessarily opposed to children's church, but let me say this. There is a biblical precedent, I believe, for having children that are old enough to understand in big, big church. We call it big church. Let me tell you a couple reasons why. Number one, parents, children are watching you. They're watching to see how you worship. They're watching to see how you sing, how you pray. You are modeling to them what it's like to be involved in corporate worship, and they're watching you. And so you're a model to your children in corporate worship. Secondly, kids pick up a whole lot more than you think. There's been times I've come home and I asked Aiden when I talked about, and he knows. Now, granted, a lot of my sermons might be over the heads of children. It might be over your heads, too. I don't know. Um, But kids are learning to sit in church and be under the authority of God's Word and God's teaching and to learn to obey and to listen. And it's also a family time where the full family can come and worship together. There's a lot of churches, some mega churches, where they have a youth service over here and a children's service over here and a senior adult service over here and a meeting adult service over here. And then you've got the service for the giraffes over here and you've got the service. All these services. Everybody comes to church and they come in their minivans and they spread out and then they never see each other at church and they come back together. That's not being the body of Christ. I value having the whole family together. And there's nothing wrong with having our youth group or having children's ministries. But when we come together as a body of Christ, let's be the body of Christ. And that includes senior adults all the way up down to children. We can all learn from each other. Okay, children, you're off the hook. Let me talk to our senior adults for a moment. Senior adults, there's sometimes a tendency to say, I've given my life to the church. I've had blood, sweat, and tears in this church. And now I really bank on that verse of Scripture in Second Hezekiah that says, Thou shalt coast. Okay? <laughs> Two things. There's no Hezekiah and there's no Thou shalt coast. The only time you can coast is when you're in heaven. Okay? So senior adults, please be praying for revival in your own lives. We need you. It thrilled my heart last week when we had that testimony service. And many of you gave testimony of how the senior adults in this church over generations past have ministered to your heart. And so senior adults, you have wisdom that we will never gain unless you lead the path in saying, I want revival. I want to be passionate about the Lord. Sign me up. I may be 80, but God's not done with me yet. I may be 90, but God's not done with me yet. I'm going to live for Jesus and love Jesus until they take me home. May that be the heartbeat of our senior adults. And so can we say that we're in times of revival where it's sweeping over the whole congregation? I'd say no. We're not there yet, but we pray for it. Second, or the fifth thing we see is the highest regard for God's word. Notice what Josiah does. Josiah, the Levites and priests don't do this. Josiah stands, has everybody gathered together. He stands and he reads the whole book of Deuteronomy. Go back and look at Deuteronomy. 34 chapters. That's a long sermon. Okay? It's not a 30-minute little sermonette for Christianettes. It was a 34-chapter hunk of sermons. And everybody gathered, and he read it to the whole assembly. And so when revival conditions come, there is a heightened sense of an appreciation for God's Word. It's as if God's Word has never been read before. Now think about this. 
And I'm not talking about business as usual type things. When God's word is open, there's an expectation where you're on the edge of your seat and you're waiting to hear what God himself has breathed out to your heart. And you drink it up as if you've never had it before, every last drop to satisfy your soul. God's word becomes so priority that we want to hear it, we want to obey it, we want to eat it up, and that you can't hear a pin drop because people are on their edge of seats. What is God going to say to us today? The highest regard for God's word. And then number six, there was a renewed commitment to obedience. Notice in verse 31, Josiah says, we're going to do something about this. We're going to stand and make a renewed commitment to obey. He says, the king stood in the place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and statutes with all his heart and with all his soul. Sometimes there comes a place where God's people stand together and say, we are going to make a renewed commitment to follow Jesus regardless of what everybody else around us does. They can laugh at us. They can call us names. They can think we're fanatical. They can think we're judgmental. They can think we're legalistic. They can think we're weird. Who cares? I want to care about what God says. And when God's people gather together, Josiah is saying, let's all stand together and renew our commitment to wholeheartedly obey the Lord. And it's stuck. Notice what happens in the last verse there, verse 33. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord. 31 years. It wasn't one of these cheap little, I'm going to come forward and cry, and I'm going to sign a card, and I'm going to rededicate my life for the 18th time, and I'm going to walk out that door and live the way I want to live. It wasn't like these people said, we're going to worship the Lord, and then they said, yeah, Josiah, sign me up for it. We love it, Josiah. God's word is awesome. But they go out and they start you know, creating these other poles and idols and these things that they're worshiping. It was a commitment that stuck. It was a long-lasting, genuine repentance. It wasn't just an emotional thing that happened. It was genuine repentance. And you know you're in true revival when this happens, okay? You're in a true spirit of revival when nobody complains, okay? Nobody, there wasn't one wise guy there in the crowd, you know, some wise guy. Josiah, this is kind of fanatical, don't you think? This is kind of hard. And this kind of legalistic, you're asking us to stand and make a renewed commitment with our whole heart and soul. I don't like particular parts of the Bible. I want to pick and choose what I want to believe. Jo- Josiah, you're asking us to do something that's a little bit too fanatical. Not one wise guy stood up and said that. So you know you're in true revival when it sweeps across the whole congregation. Nobody stands up and says, you guys are a little strange. You guys are a little, tone it down a little bit, okay? You're a little bit too on fire for Jesus, so tone it down. You're embarrassing me. Nobody says that. Everybody stands up and says, yes, we're going to serve the Lord with our hearts. And lastly, it was Christ-focused. You may ask, well, Sean, where is Christ in the Old Testament here? Christ is all through the Old Testament. It was Christ-focused. Let me ask you a very simple question. What's the Passover? The Passover was you kill the blood of a lamb... You pour the blood over the doorpost of your house so when the angel of death passes, you are saved from the judgment of God. Duh. What's that a picture of in the New Testament? The Lamb of God, Jesus, slaughtered on a cross. His blood crossed the doorpost of our hearts so that on the day of judgment, when God comes in His full wrath, we are saved from hell. It's a picture of the cross and the glories of Christ. And so when revival conditions come, there is a unique and intensified magnifying in the glories of the cross of Christ. You know the cross is an offense to the, to, the, to the people that don't know Jesus? Why do you Christians talk about blood so much? 
What's this deal with blood? The blood of the Lamb. Well, I tell you what. When times of revival come, sinners desperately cling to the old rugged cross like never before. And they say, I'm going to glory in the cross where my Savior died for me. And it's not an offense. It's beautiful. Because blood, without the the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Let me read to you a quote by Vance Havner. You probably don't know who he is. He's an old-time pastor. This quote will stick with you, okay? Are you ready? Sunday morning Christianity is the greatest hindrance to true revival. Sunday morning Christianity is the greatest hindrance to true revival. Is that true? I want you to imagine a day. You know revival has broken out at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Again, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I can look biblically. This, just think about this scenario. It's Saturday night. Instead of going out with your friends or, or going to a movie or watching TV or doing whatever you do, it's Saturday night. You gather as a family or you gather with your friends or you gather with your, you and your, your spouse, whatever. You gather around God's word and you say, you know what? God's going to do a unique work tomorrow when we gather as his people. Let's spend some time in prayer and reading his word. And you come together and you read God's word and you laugh and you cry and you pray and you soak up God's word and you lay your head on your pillow that night thinking, tomorrow God's going to do a great work at Emmanuel Baptist Church. You get up on Sunday morning, you step foot on the parking lot, and you can sense that it's not business as usual. There's an overwhelming power and presence of God here that you can't explain. And you walk through the doors of the sanctuary, and you're struck by an overwhelming presence of God's heaviness in this place. And you begin to sing. And it's not just business as usual with the praise songs, but it's heartfelt to where you're meaning what you're singing. And you hear testimony of what God has done in other people's lives. And you give cheerfully. And where's prayer? And then God's word is opened. And you're on the edge of your seat waiting to see, what is God's word for me today? And it doesn't end in some huge religious frenzy of emotional hype. Most revivals, if you look at the history of revivals, both in the Bible and in history, there was an overwhelming sense of silence. You're getting uncomfortable, aren't you, with silence. People were silenced by the heaviness of God. And there was a stillness. And they might have knelt where they were and confessed sin. They might have come to the altar in repentance and says, idols that I've lived for for years, I'm casting down, and I'm going to live for Jesus. Or maybe tensions in the church where there's relationship problems. Somebody from this side of the sanctuary looks across at somebody from this side of the sanctuary. They've been at odds for years and they walk together and says, I have offended you. Would you please forgive me? And relationships are made right. And there's this overwhelming sense that God is present in Emmanuel Baptist Church and not one person, not one person looks at their watch and says, when's this thing going to stop? I got to get down to TJ Bummers before the Methodist Church, okay? <laughs> River City's calling my name. Not one person looks at their watch and says, when's this shindig going to get over? Because i got to get out of here. You're expecting God to work. I know of a church. This was not in my notes, but I'm going to go ahead and tell it. I have a pastor friend. And actually, I was on staff with my minister of music. Dear man of God, who I love deeply, he was part of a revival in Texas that lasted. There was a pastor named Ron Dunn. In, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, who felt God calling him to pray for revival. He holed himself up in his office for a week and didn't come out and said, I need to pray for revival. Didn't even come out to eat. Said, I'm going to go into my office and get on my knees and pray for revival. 
And something unique happened in their church. Revival happened. And Jamil Badri, his name was a music minister, he said they'd be doing the invitation hymn and it would be 3 o'clock before service was done because people were coming down. And there was revival breaking out. Nobody, nobody stopped to say, it's 12 o'clock. That's the time to get done. God was moving, and sometimes they went into the late evenings. That's what revival is. Nobody cares about time. They care about God and God's agenda. Now, that would be a great day when we look and say, God is pouring out his presence and things are happening. But that's what revival conditions really are. And so we come back to the big question. If it can't be planned, it can't be programmed, I can't say next week come because next week revival's going to happen. I've got it on the calendar. We've got it orchestrated from the praise team. I've got a killer sermon. God's going to bring revival next week. Come, bring your friends. Don't miss it. We can't do that. It comes back to the humble dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit to pray for revival. To desperately cry out to God and say, God, bring it. Bring revival. And we can see some evidences here of our responsibility in revival. Do you have a tender heart? Do you have a pliable, teachable heart? Do you have a responsive heart that says, you know what, I've got idols in my life. I don't pray the way I should. I don't love the way I should. I don't care about God's word. Yeah, I'm a believer. And um, things are just kind of lackadaisical. And I'm just kind of going, coasting through life here. I don't really care about God. Are you tender to say, God, no more running? I surrender. Or maybe you're here this morning and you never have become a believer in Jesus Christ. You cannot start on this journey of revival until you have come to the point in your life where you're broken over your sins and you say, Jesus Christ, I give up. I trust you fully for my salvation. I ask you to come and forgive me of all my sins. I repent. I I turn aside from the idols I've been chasing and I turn and trust totally in you, Jesus Christ, as my all in all. I surrender my life to you. I call upon you in salvation. You can do that today. I want to ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want you to think and pray about the tender response to God's calling in your life. Do you have a tender heart or do you have a hard heart? Do you have a responsive heart or do you have a bitter heart? Do you have a heart of stone or do you have a heart of flesh? Only God can change your heart. You can't change your heart. Like a leopard can't change its spots. Only God can do a sovereign work in your life. Call out to the Lord right now in humble desperation and say, Jesus, I need you. Maybe it's to be my Savior. Jesus, I need you to be my Savior. I've never ask you. I've never confessed my sin. I've never trusted in you. I've never repented. I've never come to that point in my life where I've given it totally over to you as Savior and Lord. Today is the day where I come before you with my sin and all and give it to you and say, Jesus, please forgive me. I want eternal life. For the rest of us here, it might be a time just to say, I'm going to cast down some idols. I'll purge my life with some idols. If revival is going to start, it means that I might need to make some commitments of things in my life that are not pleasing to you, I need to get rid of. Whatever needs to happen this morning, I pray that we're obedient.